From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Anna Bernasek. Hi, and welcome to Forward Thinking. I'm Michael Chewy. And I'm Anna Bernasek. We've got a really great episode today because we're talking about unemployment. It's a great episode, I promise you, even though it's a bit of a depressing topic. We're talking about unemployment with a Nobel Prize winning economist. He basically wrote the book on unemployment. And that's such a hugely important topic right now. Millions of people have lost their jobs, and the jobs that are going to be available coming out of the pandemic might be really different from those that were available even a few years ago. Just think about some of the jobs that employed a lot of people before. In-person services like personal care, dining, travel, and leisure. And all those things have been decimated by the impact of COVID. Michael, I wonder how many of these are actually going to be coming back? It's a great question. And there are other questions too. How do we help unemployed workers find new jobs and new career paths? What support do they need along the way? Would we or could we even get to no unemployment? And what really works when it comes to policies to address these problems? And how do we even know they're working? I had the opportunity to ask these questions to Sir Christopher Pisarides. He's the Professor of Economics at London School of Economics and Professor of European Studies at the University of Cyprus. And Chris specializes in labor markets, macroeconomic policy, economic growth and structural change. And he's advised European governments on economic policy. In 2010, as we mentioned earlier, he won the Nobel Prize in Economics for his work on the functioning of labor markets, particularly the interplay between unemployment, job loss, and job creation. Let's hear what he has to say about the biggest challenges for workers, businesses, and governments during the economic recovery, and most importantly, what to do about it. Chris, welcome to Forward Thinking. When I think about where we are today, I can't think of a more important time to really be discussing your work than in the middle of this pandemic. Because, you know, we've seen that some entire industries um, have been devastated, jobs have been devastated. And I really want to get to discussing that. But I want to start at the beginning with you and ask you, you know, of all things, why did you get interested in the labor market? I mean, when I look at your career, it doesn't look like you've done a lot of job switching yourself. So, Chris, how did you get interested in the labor markets in the first place? Well, when I started doing economics, I liked it as a subject because I, I like the format uh, side of it, the mathematics and all that. But then I, I've always been interested in, in important problems. I wouldn't just spend my time solving problems that are of no significance. And, and when I was um, finishing my undergraduate studies, the big problem was the rise in unemployment. We got used to very low levels of unemployment, about 2% after the war. Come late 1960s, it was still around there, although the states had a little bit higher. But then you get into the 70s and suddenly you see unemployment shooting up, going from 2 to 4 to 5. And um, people didn't really know why that was happening. We um, had economists saying, oh, you know, it's a classic uh, demand deficiency, let government borrow and spend and unemployment would go away. Some governments tried it and they got inflation instead. Others were saying, uh, no, you know, there are shocks on the supply side. You know, Jeffrey Sachs and uh, Michael Bruner wrote an influential book that was addressing that issue. And uh, Robert Solow as well uh, made some influential statements. So we couldn't understand what is a supply shock, what do we do with it? And I thought that's a, a really interesting problem in need of some formalization and and some thinking and and it's also extremely important because unemployment is a, is a very serious problem that i i think government should always be um, 
dealing with it. It's a cause of poverty, of disenfranchisement from the labor market, of misery. And there it was, I've got into it and um, it's still the problem that I'm always thinking about and writing about and, and, and talking about. The paper that you wrote with Dale Mortensen in 1994, Job Creation and Job Destruction in the Theory of Unemployment, that became really influential. Why do you think it had such a big impact? Well, you see, before we did that work, people were thinking of unemployment as, um, as a kind of stock of um, workers, as a number of workers, if you like, who could not get a job. So they will start from the top end of the market and say, this is how much output this economy needs. That's how much is demanded. Then how many people do you need to produce that output? And then you will come up with a number. And then they would say, well, how many workers want jobs? And if there are more workers that want jobs, you call the difference unemployment. Now, the problem with that is that you cannot do anything with it other than say, oh, increase the output that the economy produces, and that's it, you get rid of unemployment. But, but how do you do it? It was already shown in the, in the marketplace that if government tries to increase output through demand, it doesn't work. And what we did was to start from below, saying the outcomes in the labor market are the result of workers looking for jobs, companies looking for workers, the two need to come together, they need to agree that the qualifications of the worker are the right ones for the, for the firm that wants the workers, that the firm has the capital that the worker needs to make the best use of uh, his or her skills, uh, that unemployment insurance policy might influence the incentives that the worker needs to take a job, the tax policy might influence the incentives of the, of the company. And, and once you open, open the field up like that, it gives you unlimited possibilities for research in that area and working out the impact of these different uh, policies or different features of the labor market on unemployment. And many, many people got into it. They tried the model out and, and it was working, it was giving them the right answers. And that's how models become influential in the end. Okay, so let me see if I've got it. The way that I sort of understand it is before you came along, the dominant view in economics was that if you lost your job, you'd find another one before too long. And that what you really did in your model was kind of take into account the way the world really worked, the, the sort of the frictional delays in employment matching, as well as job market changes that really prevent uh, matching workers to jobs. Does that, did I capture it as well or not? Yes, we did. What we said is that, okay, you know, the worker will get a job eventually, but the time that it takes to find that job depends on how many jobs are being offered in the labor market, what types of skills firms want, what incentives the worker has to accept the jobs, what's the structure of, of production, you know, the profit that the firm expects to make, conditions overall in the market, and all those things influence the duration of unemployment. And therefore, you could study there how long does the worker remain unemployed and what could influence that duration, what could make it shorter, what would make it longer if you did certain things. And on that basis, you um, derive 
good policies uh, towards unemployment. And they're still the policies that governments use, in fact, widely to work out how long people remain unemployed and what the implications of that unemployment are. And the word mismatch, although it existed before, it really couldn't be studied, it couldn't be understood very well until we produce the concept of the matching function, which is how well uh, firms uh, with vacancies are matched to the existing labor force. And therefore, you have measures of the uh, gap, if you like, in skills, which is commonly known as mismatch. Uh, that's why our theory is known as the matching theory of unemployment, as well as some other uh, names that people use. Okay. So then, Chris, what what really are the implications of your work for policy? Uh, firstly, um, lower unemployment than what might exist is not always a good thing for the labor market because some unemployment uh, is good because of the matching problem. If a worker becomes unemployed if, or if a new worker uh, leave school, a, a person leaves school, gets into the labor market as a new worker, it, it wouldn't be a good idea to accept the first job that is offered on day one and get into it because it may not be the job that would bring out the best productivity from that worker or the job that that worker would like best. Now, you might say it's obvious, and I now think it is, but when we were working on it, this didn't exist. You know, it was always, people were always saying, oh, you know, why do we have unemployment? Let's cut it down to zero. You know, why do people stay unemployed for so long before they find a job? So there is an idea there that um, some unemployment would be good because it improves the match, the quality of the job. On the other hand, it also implies that if you offer unemployment uh, compensation, which is necessary to reduce poverty caused by unemployment, then you have to be careful when you are doing that because if you just offer it unconditionally, it's going to create disincentives for people to take job, jobs and it's going to lengthen the duration of unemployment and therefore it's going to increase your unemployment incidence. You're going to see more people unemployed because they stay unemployed longer, collecting benefit. Now, that's been um, exploited a lot by um, Politicians, I don't agree with that way that they say we have to cut benefit because of these incentives. A better way of dealing with it is to say we need to structure our unemployment compensation policy in such a way that it deals with the poverty issue, but at the same time, it doesn't create those disincentives that you might get if you offer it unconditionally. And the leading countries that uh, develop policies that um, give exactly the answer to the question I've just posed, how to structure it, are mainly the um, Scandinavians, uh, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, um, and uh, other countries have followed them now, and most of them do follow uh, this uh, advice of structuring the benefit in such a way that the incentives are not harmed very much when you're dealing with the poverty issue of unemployment. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what all this means for today in the middle of this pandemic. At MGI, we just released a major report on the future of work after COVID, which I know you are a key advisor on. And our research is showing that we're seeing the sort of disruption to the labor market being accelerated by the pandemic, and particularly for low-wage jobs. 
And many of these might not even be coming back. So my question to you is, what are you seeing in terms of the labor market right now? And why is it critical that we focus on this and address what's happening? The, the, the report really addresses all the big issues that we are facing with COVID. It's, uh, it's an excellent comprehensive discussion of what we are expecting to see. On that basis, you could derive what might be optimal policies to, towards unemployment. You know, the, the report is long, enough, is long enough as it is. It doesn't go too deeply as you might need on that issue if you are designing an optimal policy. But um, I would say that the main thing that comes out of the report and the main policy that you would want to follow is that the, the challenge that is being faced because of the additional disruption in the labor market is how to make sure that whatever jobs uh, are opened up in uh, new sectors of the economy, that the workers transition easily into these new jobs because the jobs they're losing now uh, are jobs, uh, one, that due to increased automation in the labor market. So you might include their manufacturing jobs, routine jobs that... uh, can be done by by computers that has accelerated a lot so the job loss due to that has been has accelerated and second jobs that traditionally were considered to be safe for example in the food preparation business uh, in the entertainment business that suddenly are being lost because people want to avoid this proximity to other human beings by going to a restaurant you know you eat at home for example now, those workers were under the impression, or, or at least we were the economists <laughs> talking about what jobs would survive, that those jobs would survive for a longer period to come. In fact, they are not surviving. And therefore, those workers might need to change sector of employment. And again, the best policy that the government can follow there is to provide this dual support on the one hand, make sure that these workers don't sink into poverty because they're already low-income workers. On the other hand, provide both incentives and financial support for the retraining of these workers into new types of employment that will come up after the pandemic. Now, you will have every right to ask me what jobs are going to come up after the pandemic, and that's the difficult question because there is so much uncertainty about what we're seeing around it's certainly the case that health and care would be a big, big, big sector of job creation. And uh, the workers, for example, losing jobs in the food preparation industry could retrain to go into uh, personal care. And uh, that's where the government might step in and help in, in these uh, transitions. I also think, actually, that um, because of... Uh, uh, sort of, you know, high standards of living in uh, in Western countries, you know, productivity will start rising again, that the leisure industry will come back. You know, travel for uh, tourism will come back. Um, other forms of entertainment or uh, personal assistance in the home, you know, I, I cannot imagine people continuing to do their own cleaning, their own cooking, their own everything at home uh, like they're doing now. So those sectors will create jobs eventually. It may not, maybe not as many in the, as, as they were anticipated to create before, but they will certainly come back. And there you might need government help again with training. But the important thing, though, is that governments 
should provide support, income support now, whilst workers are making that transition. Otherwise, the inequalities will grow even bigger and um, we're running serious risks of social unrest even. So that's, that's exactly what I wanted to focus on with you is that transition. Because if you think about a country like the United States, and I'd like to ask you the difference with Europe as well, but just US, you sort of feel like you're on your own here. And, you know, so what you're saying is that the key areas for government to help is number one, provide income support while you have a disruption to income. And at the same time, I guess the retraining, the the opportunity to retrain. But it seems to me in this country that's easier said than done. And it's also, I mean, I just think about it for a person. You, you know, you think about you have to have the money and know what to retrain in. It's daunting really, isn't it? It's not that easy. It, it is. In fact, no one standing outside the market like, uh, you know, as economists or, or more importantly, the government, uh, some government department, they, they, they will not know what uh, skills are exactly needed in the market. It's only companies know that. And therefore, the training needs to be provided by, by companies because they are the ones that will know in what to train and to what extent. Now, for, for training to succeed, however, it has to be funded from outside as well because no company, except for the very big ones, I guess, will take on uh, workers on... Um, on, on expensive training programs if they're running the risk that some other company will come and take their workers away from them after they get trained. You know, there is this poaching problem. And uh, therefore, government needs to come in and support it. I mean, the government could collect uh, the cost in the form of tax from the company sector as a whole and then give it back to those companies that are offering approved uh, training programs. Then the other issue is that is that training succeeds when the worker owns the training, in the sense that the worker is doing the training, not because someone forced that worker to do the training, but because they believe that it's good for them and their career and, and it's going to give them career progression and a pay rise. And for that to happen, uh, governments need to think a little bit more carefully how they're supporting the training, that they're they shouldn't be supporting it just by unconditionally giving money to companies and saying to them, okay, you know, train. Somehow, you know, maybe part of the money should be given to the worker who then the worker chooses how to spend it. I mean, they cannot take it as, as money, but they could draw on a fund, a training fund, which they spend. You know, Singapore has a very good scheme like that. I think it's called Future Skills. Some other countries are introducing it. It's not an easy thing, but but we have enough experience now to know how to plan those kinds of uh, training support schemes. So, Chris, is this really a two-part problem as we come out of the pandemic? There's one part where we need to help people immediately, and then there's another part where we really have the longer-term issues of how we all, I mean, it's often said we we don't have a job for life anymore. We have to get used to, you know, multiple jobs, multiple careers. So is there a short-term and a long-term way to view coming out of the pandemic? Now, what you're saying is absolutely correct because the income support issue has to come immediately. The restructuring and the training is something that even if, even if it's starting now, we're not going to see the effects of that for another uh, up to five years, maybe. And therefore, it looks like a long t- longer term issue, but it's not something to postpone because it's longer term. 
is something that has to start immediately. And we're going to start, and we're going to start seeing the effects of that in small measures immediately, but they will grow and grow in, in future over as we're moving on. In fact, the, the McKinsey study, the recent McKinsey study on post-COVID labor markets that you just mentioned, that it has a horizon up to 2030. And can we talk a little bit about the difference between the US and the European approach? I mean, does do European governments have a different approach to this problem than we do in the US? The European Union has been very supportive towards its uh, members. It's giving them a lot of money to restructure after the pandemic. And um, it's not giving them conditionally, it's saying uh, submit programs that uh, uh, th- that will support workers out of jobs, the job creation, the environment, sustainability, which are very important issues with the Green Deal in the EU. Uh, it's generally the European model is one of... Um, uh, higher taxation and higher support, which at, which at this juncture where we are now is something that is really needed. Britain is doing something uh, very similar with the furlough program, which is still there, is coming to an end soon, but uh, I'm sure very soon new programs will be announced uh, to support employment. Uh, after the pandemic, we need uh, to have um, new concepts about good jobs, where jobs are created the environment will be very important. I am heading, in fact, in London, the uh, Institute for the Future of Work, where we have lots of reports on these uh, issues and recommendations about the resilience of the labour market. And uh, in these days, of course, such support doesn't really exist. And more attention needs to be paid there in that, uh, you know, you have an economy that's, that's going down and the stock market that keeps going up. Um, and... Um, but now there's a change in the Biden administration. Uh, those in charge, especially Janet Yelling at the Treasury, I think she's uh, she's lived in Europe. She does uh, support Europe, this kind of European policy, at least from her academic work that, that I know. So I expect to see changes in, in the States as well. But it's a long way from where Trump was to the European current model, <laughs> And and Chris, so do you see that it could be harder for us in the U.S. than to sort of make this transition than it is for Europe? You you really need it, I, I believe, just to stop the social unrest. I mean, we we see so much social unrest taking place in the states, so much poverty, uh, so much depending on uh, you know race, minorities uh, suffering whenever there is a problem. It's, it's just not right for the richest country in the world to have such a big section of its population uh, getting that rotten deal. And, and it's really down to government. You know, I'm, I mean, we live in, in democracies. You elect a government to look after its people. And it's just not looking after that section of the population. And it's a very big section. Quite honestly, I, 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 think, I think it's shameful, actually, quite honestly. I think government should do something. And I don't think you'd be alone in that. I think there is a lot of agreement on that. Can I ask you, when you look at this pandemic, has it changed your perspective in any way on the labor market and how it functions and what we know about it? Um, Not really. The way I look at it is that the the framework we have, which uh, that structure is there, but it got a shock, which we've never seen before. 
And it, it opens up so many research avenues and so many important policy problems that we have to address that we should just get into it and, and, and address them. The, 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 the McKinsey report actually put it beautifully in the sense that there is now a new element in the labor market that uh, we need to take into account when we're explaining what's been happening. And this is personal contact. Whereas before, when we were talking about what jobs are at threat of closing down, the usual story was that, oh, you know, we have to see which jobs can be automated, you know, what tasks can machines do, what is it that uh, only humans can do. Answer back then, oh, you know, the personal care and personal touch and, and this empathy that we showed towards other human beings in need, it, only humans can do, not machines. Well, now humans cannot do it because you cannot get close to those people to show them what what's going on. So it, it, it's, it's a new challenge in the end that it's a new problem, which we didn't have before. But it hasn't changed my view of what is the structure of the labor market and how should we think about the labor market. Think of it in the same way with some new shock that comes in that tells you some things that you consider safe are no longer safe. If we sort of broaden it out from the labor market and think about the pandemic, I mean, it's sort of been a real-time economic experiment. Are there any things uh, more broadly that we've learned from this pandemic or that we need to do more research and more thinking about? I'm talking as an economist that uh, you always throw throw the ball in the <laughs> Someone else is caught, but the, the medics should do more, a lot more research and tell us how risky it really is that we might get new of these viruses coming out of animals. In fact, there is a lot of research taking place about viruses that um, sort of transmit, if you like, from animals to humans and, and what they might be doing and how do we deal with these uh, situations. I think that's important because it has a huge impact on the economy. Uh, now, what, what we can do is... Um, as, as economists, is something that we hadn't done before, actually, at all. Um, that if the medics are telling us, which is what they seem to be telling us, that, uh, look, COVID-19 is not a one-off event. You know, after all, we had SARS before, we had Ebola and, and all that, and it might come again, is to learn how to adapt to these shocks uh, better it, and not, not wait until they hit us. It's a little, it's a little bit like... Uh, our response to climate change, actually, that there is mitigation, measures you take beforehand so that you don't get into these problems, but also adaptation, which is things that you do so that when, if you get hit by some disaster, then you are quick to deal with it and you don't wait until you observe the worst before you do something. Chris, I'm curious, you know, when you look at economics today and the problems, what do you see as the most significant questions that economic researchers should really be addressing? I think the most significant, actually, in my general field is, is inequality. It, it's something that's been going on for about 20 or 30 years now in the States. It's, it's spreading elsewhere, that every time there is some new technology, some new disaster and all that, it, it's always the poorest sections of society that get hit uh, uh, worst. It, it, it's a very difficult problem. I think the only way that it can be dealt is not by aiming always for the technology that is going to give us the best profit and is going to automate best. You know, follow a more stakeholder kind of approach. Think of your employees if you are 
the big companies, your stakeholders, make sure that you do your R&D and you invent your technologies in a direction that gives you better jobs, more support for all your employees, that kind of thing that, that will reduce inequality. Not necessarily just go for your maximum profit and then if the government wants to reduce inequality, tax the rich and give the money to the poor. That That is not a sustainable long-term solution. Of course, government does have a very important role to play in providing good quality public services, employing people at, with good pay, good work conditions, not squeezing them out because high taxes lose you votes and therefore throw them into poverty, although they might be working as nurses in giving important care and all that. Who just They just don't get paid as much as they should be. But inequality is definitely the big problem. I got so motivated to understand unemployment when I was starting. I keep telling students that come to the LSE now or, or, or to the University of Cyprus and say, what should, research should I be doing? I would say to them, just get motivated to understanding inequality and you'll become famous one day. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com slash MGI or on Twitter at McKinsey underscore MGI. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Anna Bernasek and me, Michael Chewy. Our producer is Lauren Melling, and our audio engineer is Colin Warren.